What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. This week's episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast was recorded before a performance of the award-winning play Oslo, the true story of two maverick Norwegian diplomats who coordinated top-secret talks culminating in the Oslo Peace Accords. In this pre-theatre discussion, our panel share their experiences of against-the-odds peace negotiations and discuss what lessons can be learnt from the past that apply to the political climate today. Oslo is playing at the Harold Pinter Theatre until the 30th of December 2017, following a critically acclaimed sold-out run at the National Theatre and a Tony Award-winning run on Broadway. For more information and tickets, you can visit oslotheplay.com. And now, here's this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you for that warm um, welcome. Uh, welcome to this uh, evening discussion ahead of the play, Oslo, or entitled Can We Bring Peace Between Enemies, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. And My name is Jonathan Friedland. I write for the Guardian newspaper and have been reporting on, one way or another, uh, this conflict for, uh, well, quite a many, few years. I shouldn't say how many. It is, yes, two and a half decades, exactly, actually. Um, so it's my uh, pl- privilege to chair the discussion this evening. I'm going to introduce you to our panellists in a moment. But first of all, I thought we would. It's actually going to be slightly difficult, but I'll put my, do that. I thought we'd do a little straw poll because it'll be useful for us to know how many people have already seen the play and how many are going to see the play and etc. So, well, well, good, there we are. The lights are coming out. So first of all, how many people have already seen the play Oslo? Okay, it looks like over half, I would say. And how many are going to see it? And keep your hands up if you're going to see it tonight. Okay, so, you're some, so either you have seen it uh, or um, uh, there's about half of you who are about to see it or going to see it quite soon. And how many absolutely never going to go and see it? <laughs> One, no, no hands go up. Well, that's useful because it means we'll avoid any spoilers as we um, perhaps inadvertently tell you what happens in the end um, of the Middle East peace process. Um, <laughs> Just in case, uh, but no, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep the, those uh, uh, twists for you. So uh, let me, without further ado, say something about our three speakers, and I'll introduce them uh, more or less in the order that they are seated close to me. So on my immediate left is the former Assistant Secretary of State and Chief Spokesman for the United States State Department in the uh, Madeleine Albright period from 1997 to 2000, when Bill Clinton... Uh, was president, and of course those were years where there was a major push for Israeli-Palestinian peace. He's since then been a writer and commentator and close observer of that conflict and of foreign affairs in general. A warm welcome, please, for Jamie Rubin. Next up is an award-winning senior CNN correspondent who's reported extensively from around the world, been based in uh, Beirut and in China and elsewhere, but has particularly come to prominence reporting on the conflict in Syria, where she's really uh, seen the conflict up close and interviewed everybody involved. Also has some experience of the Middle East conflict, covered not one but two conflicts in Gaza. Uh, A warm welcome, please, for Clarissa Ward. And completing our lineup is the founder and chairman of Forward Thinking, a non-governmental organisation which works 
with all sides in the, uh, of the divide in the Israel-Palestine conflict and has particularly, uh, I was going to say carved a niche, but made a particular contribution, which is in, in exposing both sides in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the uh, different sides in the conflict in Northern Ireland and introducing those uh, sets of people to each other and hoping for some progress through there. Uh, he is William Sieghardt. Very good. So we've, had, we've done our little straw poll uh, and discovered half the audience has seen the play and half are very looking forward to it. So without ruining it for people who haven't seen it, I thought we'd just get a quick survey of reactions to the play in you know, under a minute. Um, start with you, Clarissa. What did you think of the play? I thought the play was absolutely brilliant um, for a number of reasons. But basically, I think it really forces us to think about what we mean when we talk about peace and, and what peace actually looks like and what is realistic and what is idealistic and how we can go about achieving some kind of a peace, whether it's through humanizing each other, which is a big theme that you see in the play, whether it's through humor, which is another recurring strain. I also found it particularly interesting to me because although the Oslo Accords took place sometime before I was working, what we hear and learn about through studying the Oslo Accords and through watching this play is still so relevant to so many of the conflicts that I have covered very closely, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Syria, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's, you know, it, the list goes on, you get the picture. So there are a lot of themes that this play tackles that I think are so pertinent uh, and really help us to have a better understanding of what peace means. Sometimes we tend to think of it as being peace means harmony, it means love, it means forgiveness, it means embracing the other side. You watch the play, you cover a conflict, you quickly get an understanding that actually the best case scenario for peace is the absence of conflict. And what does that mean? Thank you. Um, Jamie Rubin, what did you think of the play? Well, knowing a, the bit of the Oslo process from its aftermath in the years that I worked in the government where Oslo became public and efforts were made to fill out the agreements that were struck during uh, this uh, period of secret talks in Norway and knowing the players themselves, I think it was pretty accurate. Obviously, it was a play and they compressed uh, issues and they probably summarized people's positions and over-characterized particular people, but in terms of getting a flavor of what it takes for uh, two groups of people who are under enormous political pressure to hate the other side, uh, to get together, watching the diplomats themselves maneuver both within their government and with other governments, I thought was particularly realistic and, and yet still a lot of fun. And when you say the diplomats themselves, you mean the Scandinavians? Yes, yes. The, in this case, the diplomats yes. are, or literally there's only one, which is Mona Jewell, the, the, the Norwegian diplomat, but her husband has subsequently been a diplomat at the UN, right. and, and they've both you know, played big roles because of their initial role in this, uh, in this effort in Oslo. Great. William, your, your potted review of the play, what did you think? Well, I came last night. I thought it was compelling. I thought it was a fantastic piece of theatre. I thought it was beautifully acted, beautifully staged, fast-paced. And um, I wasn't around in 93, at least I was around, physically around, but I wasn't involved in the conflict. But since then, I've been involved quite a lot. And uh, I just thought the characterisation was brilliant. The costumes were spot on, even today, <laughs> mm -hmm. even going back that, that period. And uh, I thought it was a really interesting lesson, both... Um, how other actors who aren't the U.S. government can make a big difference. And also, I suppose, what, what else intrigued me most of all? I think just um, the sense of possibility, but it also taught me a little bit, too, about how not to do it, which we'll come to a bit later. We will later. come to that. Yeah. Um, well, we've got a full house here, because I really liked it, too. I loved it. And uh, things I liked about it was, one, the role of humour. Mm. Um, that often, and people who've you know been involved in even the most uh, loaded and uh, you know uh, high stakes peace talks, do say that sometimes it is just a moment of humour, a shared joke, which does break the ice. And I thought I particularly liked that. I liked the focus on, if you like, the backroom people. There's, uh, you know, with the exception of Shimon Peres, who appears in the play, most of the people involved would not be household names, and and I thought that's a very refreshing thing to do. Uh, and above all, really, I just thought the idea of a play that is so kind of empathetic 
uh, for everyone involved. And, uh, you know, often with this conflict in particular, people have reserve empathy for one side, not the other. And yet everybody on stage, I think, is uh, one point or other invites the audience's empathy. So we're, we're all fans of the play. Uh, that's a good starting point. Um, well, let's talk about the, 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 the substance of it. Uh, as, as I said, you know, spoiler alert, there are some Oslo Accords that do come out of the process that you see on stage. Uh, and in a, it was 24 years ago uh, that those were signed in that big ceremony on the White House lawn. And at the time, it seemed absolutely game-changing uh, and huge. Um, but what is its uh, legacy now? How important is it? In a way, if it wasn't for this play, William, I'll start this one with you. If it wasn't for this play, would we even be talking about Oslo Accords at all? Well, uh, I would, but I, whether the general world would uh, is a different question. That's certainly true. And it's good that this play has brought it out, both because it's, as I said earlier, on a stunning piece of theatre. Um, I think that what intrigues me about it is the fact that Israel-Palestine as a conversation isn't in most of our conversations anymore. I think I used to go and visit the US State Department every year and talk to uh, Secretary Burns uh, uh, ab about the situation. And we'd almost have this, this sort of pat where I'd say to him, what number is it? And he'd say it's number seven, which means that's how high it is in the list of priorities of a US administration. Um, it's startling now how Israel-Palestinian conflict doesn't really pop up in most people's lives. It's startling how the word Gaza only pops up when there's a war. Uh, so I think just in terms of bringing a general focus back onto this conflict, because I think it's centrally important to the region and to the world, um, I think that makes it a, you know, a, a, a very good arrival in our lives. Uh, but you have some worries about uh, the Oslo Accords and why they didn't last well you've, you've talked I, about I think well. I think again it was before my time so I, I have to be careful what I say but uh, uh, and I think historians and Jamie was probably more, more closely involved than me would would put me right but it, it's really about what didn't come after or what did come after I mean the first thing that came after was Benjamin Netanyahu um, not that far after and of course his political career has been really about making damn sure that there isn't too much progress post-Oslo. But actually, at the root of it, I suppose what intrigues me is that looking back on, on the Oslo Accords, the people who were doing the negotiating on both sides represented some of the constituencies on both sides, but not all of the constituencies. And I think what we've all learned through the Northern Ireland peace process in particular is, you know, you remember in the early days of the Northern Ireland peace process, agreements were made but the moment, the extraordinary moment when Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley suddenly burst into our news programmes and our newspapers and there they were smiling and clapping each other on the back, that was the crucial moment. And in a way, the point about the Oslo peace process is that both sides excluded their difficult people. Uh, um, the Islamists, uh, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, all those people like that on the Palestinian side were excluded by the PLO. And the PLO at the time were based in Tunis, so there was a big big sort of rift between those living in Gaza and having a much tougher time and these PLO people being driven around in Mercedes, you know, sort of uh, in North Africa somewhere. And from the Israeli side, you had a Labour administration pushing this process and they excluded the settler community in the far right. And I think what we've learned from peace processes, they've got to be inclusive, not exclusive. If you exclude uh, any major constituency, particularly because you deem them too extreme in their views, they're likely to blow up the process that you've just created. You're, you were nodding at that, I noticed. I, I, I am absolutely nodding, and I'm thinking particularly of Afghanistan and how much the U.S. has been sort of forced to really shift its position uh, on the war going on there from a place of we must defeat and destroy al-Qaeda and overthrow the Taliban to a slow but sure recognition that actually it's not really possible, um, at the moment at least, to have any kind of lasting peace in Afghanistan without acknowledging the fact that the Taliban does does have significant pockets of territory, that they do have significant pockets of popular support. And so how do you get yourself to that position, particularly 
if you're a country like the United States, which you know sees itself as an arbiter of, of what is righteous in the world, how do you get yourself to that place where you can kind of swallow your pride and accept that when it comes to mediation, when it comes to peace agreements, you often have to hold your nose and accept the fact that there are going to be actors perhaps on both sides, certainly Mm -hmm. likely on one side, that you don't necessarily feel comfortable with being a part of the process, that you wouldn't like to see playing an integral role in the future of the country. And as you said, we saw uh, with the way the PLO tried to sort of marginalize Islamists, we have seen uh, Islamist groups marginalize over and over again. And what we find, those of us who end up going to these countries and covering these wars, is that what happens is you're pushing them further and further onto the fringe. You're pushing them to further and further extreme positions. Um, So it can have a kind of negative, unintended consequence whereby you almost empower or radicalize the people that you're actually just trying to marginalize. And one, one additional point. You, you, need, you need trust. Trust is, is, is central to all of this, and um, this play will teach you all about how trust is built. But I think you know, one of the problems is, is quite often in conflicts, the people who have put themselves in the position of trying to do the mediation don't genuinely have the trust of both sides. And if you don't have the trust of both sides from the start, and this has been the American problem within the Israel-Palestinian conflict, is the sense that they're party free to one side more than the other, that, that puts you in a very difficult situation for, for making any progress. Well, I was going to ask you about the other thing, before, but, let, but let's pick up on that since Williams put it out there. You know, what people see is that the people working hard and bringing both sides together are from Norway. They, are, they make lots of jokes about being a small country that doesn't have power in that region. And yet they do get results, and people know that most of the time the mediator, the broker, has been the United States. Well, did, did Oslo succeed in a way because it wasn't America doing it? And are there things that where America just simply can't be the, 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 the mediator that we see on the stage in the play Oslo? Well, a lot of issues have been scrambled here. Yeah. And I'd well, like I'll to just un- start with that one, and then I'll go to the I'm one. going to unscramble them. Um, during the peace process in the 90s, Benjamin Netanyahu, the extremist described was president when a peace agreement was negotiated and implemented by the Netanyahu administration. And when he started to not implement it and went up against Bill Clinton's support for the peace process, and when an American president was beloved by the Israeli people and the Palestinians, Netanyahu lost the election and Barack came in. Bill Clinton, I accompanied accompanied him to Gaza not the West Bank, to Gaza, where the PLO charter was changed, and they did it for Clinton. The PLO did it for Clinton. All the different groups that make up the PLO. And I went around Gaza with one of the uh, the PLO aides, and they were proud to be associated with the United States. Unfortunately, we've fallen a long way since then. Hmm. So there are no hard rules for these things. And I think to think that the, the Oslo process that grew out of this period when Mona Jewell and Terry Larson played the role that only a, a, a non-known party can play, which is to step out of the way and let them resolve it. And sometimes there is a time for that. Hmm. And, and everyone would have been thrilled if they had continued to operate themselves. But when they were unable to operate themselves, the call around the world from everyone involved, Europeans, Arabs, Asians, Palestinians, Israelis, was for the United States to get involved at a time when the President of the United States was respected by both parties. Again, that hasn't been true since. Barack Obama had no support in Israel. He couldn't achieve the unique capability of an American president to persuade the Israeli people that their leaders have led them down the wrong path. And Netanyahu never again wanted to be on the wrong side of a president who was popular in Israel. Once he concluded that Obama wasn't popular, he knew he could walk all over him and nothing would happen to him politically. So what does that tell you? Is there a general rule? I don't know. Each of these things is different. What I know is that in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, for a decade, people in that part of the world lived with great hope, Mm. without daily violence. The Palestinians were building a country. 
They were, uh, as I saw it in the period that I went there 10, 12 times during that, those years, they were beginning to be optimistic. And at the time, a majority of Palestinians and a majority of Israelis believed it was worth compromising for peace. Now, what's happened is that when it came time to make the big deal, to end the conflict, I believe, and you can say that I'm biased, but I believe that the Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat, had a much harder time making the final compromises than the Barak, the Israeli leader. And when that didn't happen, and everyone realized that even with all these good moments in our, in, our, uh, you know, in our favor, an American president supporting both sides, an American president popular in Israel, a base to, to, to build on for 10 years, all the confidence and trust yeah. build up, even then you couldn't resolve the conflict. And that burst the balloon and created enormous resentment and, and, and frankly made peace in Israel no longer politically saleable. And the Israeli, the people that are in this play were pilloried and attacked and vilified in the Israeli press for the things they did in those rooms in, 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 in Oslo. Yeah. And that's what happened when, when the whole thing collapsed. And I can assure you there are Palestinians working for Yasser Arafat who wished they had done something else, especially when Hamas took over Gaza and the two were split up and the prospects for peace are essentially gone. And, and it is quite true that the Israelis you see on stage are known still to this day as the Oslo criminals in, uh, in Israeli uh, discourse. But just on this one point... Um, that, that William made before, I'm just interested to know what you think about this, that the people not on stage in the show tonight and, uh, and who weren't involved in Oslo were Hamas and the settlers, uh, that the extremes of both sides were not present. Was that a fatal flaw? In no, the, I in don't the Oslo think it was process? a fatal flaw. I think a fatal flaw was the Israeli governments who continued to build settlements and thought they could get rid of them at the end and not realizing they made it harder and harder and harder to ever get rid of them. But yeah. more importantly, the moderate is, uh, uh, Palestinians who couldn't make the difficult compromises. And when people say we should have Hamas and the settlers in the room, William, I know you've done enormously valuable work in educating Hamas officials about uh, what it would be like if they became, in our words, you know, associated with a, a peacemaking group. But I can assure you, as hard as it was to have moderate Israelis in the room with moderate Palestinians so close to an agreement with Hamas, I mean, even I remember Ariel Sharon wouldn't shake Arafat's hand in, at the Y uh, Accords. If you brought Hamas and the settlers in the room, I'm sorry, you may have have everybody relevant in the room, but sometimes you have to defeat the opponents of peace. And that's what the Israelis did when they Okay. kick the settlers out of Gaza, and you can go too far in trying to get extremists in the room so and let, ruin the whole let, thing. Let me get Clarissa in on this point. Sorry, I had to go on. This can be outside the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yeah. In general, because uh, there are two different approaches here you're yes. hearing articulated. Yes. There's the William approach, you've got to have everyone in the room, and in the way Jamie's I, saying, I, hold on. I feel like Introduce yourself in a minute, but I just want to hear Clarissa. And that view, and then maybe not William's, but then this other view that says actually it's better to get the people who can make a deal mm -hmm. and then hopefully they will either sell it to the populations or impose their will if they have to defeat the opponents of peace. From other conflicts you've observed, yeah. which approach, and William will clarify in a minute, but which approach do you think is sounder? The problem is I think there is not a one-size-fits-all. Each conflict is unique. I completely agree with what Jamie is saying about good luck getting Hamas and the settlers to kiss and make up. You know, it was hard enough to get moderate Palestinians and moderate peace-wanting Israelis to kiss and make up. But if you look at the Syrian conflict for example, where peace negotiations have really focused on the so-called moderate opposition and getting them to sit at the table with the regime of Bashar al-Assad, that is problematic because the reality is that the moderate opposition in Syria doesn't have a huge amount of political support, doesn't have a huge amount of territory or momentum on the ground inside Syria. They're largely seen, actually in some ways as the PLO maybe was by some, as sort of being uh, an external force almost, mm. that they live overseas, that they stay in nice hotels in Switzerland and wear ties and go to these types of negotiations, but that they are not the ones who are dying and bleeding on the ground. Mm. The ones who are dying and bleeding on the ground broadly 
are, at least in the northern part of the country, a coalition of different Islamist groups, some of which we know are very extremist, others of which are perhaps more akin to like the Muslim Brotherhood or something like that. So, and then, of course, if you're going to look at the Afghanistan paradigm, you know, we have been inculcated to think of the Taliban as being extreme, uh, with good reason, although I think ISIS has now forced us all to kind of reassess what extremism even means, because it's been taken to new levels. So, I do think with each conflict, there are different parameters and different realities yeah. that you're dealing with on the ground. The, the, the sort of guiding or overarching theme that needs to be taken into account is pragmatism. And I think that's sort of what Jamie was getting at. in a way, you could at. say from what you said, when you made this very good point about moderates in Syria not having uh, much you know, strength yeah. on the ground. In a way, the guiding rule, I take your point about not having one size fits all, could be you need to deal with whoever is strong and you has need to power deal with and, re who, and represents a lot of their people. Who is in power, who yeah. has the support of the people. Yeah. Absolutely. Introduce yourself, will you? Yeah. <laughs> I'll try. No, I think Jamie's absolutely right. It would have been madness to try at, at that stage to get the settlers or Hamas as part of the process. That's not really what I'm trying to say. I think what I'm saying is if we go back to the Northern Ireland process, which we're all here probably more familiar with, we remember the days of Trimble and Hume, and by only really engaging in the middle ground, it made Sinn Féin and the DUP of Paisley more and more and more powerful, and their own political base in the, in the middle disappeared. And similarly, w within um, modern politics in Israel-Palestine, Hamas rose to power, and I think the Israeli settler right rose to power, in part because they were always ignored and excluded for the process. And you could look at a sort of much long-term historian's perspective and say that in our post-Marx, post-Freudian world, we've begun to demonize the religious. We're not just secular, but we're secularist. And we think of the religious and religiously inspired groups as extremist. And therefore, somehow or other, we try and keep them out of the way. And endless Israeli politicians who were involved in Oslo and in Camp David have said to me ever since, we made a mistake. We, we left the religious dimension out. We tried to leave Jerusalem till last. And we really made a mistake by trying to do that. Just on that, that point about it's hard, isn't it, to, Jamie, to dispute that the, after Oslo, the forces that gained strength were not the uh, Fatah wing, but Hamas, so the stronger, and not the Yossi Balin and Shimon Peres wing of Israeli politics, uh, the people who you see on stage, but instead it was the settler right, nationalist right. That, that, there must have, be something they in have, that. They have gotten stronger, the extremists, the opponents of Oslo, the opponents of making an agreement, the opponents of a two-state solution. They're the stronger forces. So they are stronger now. They're, I don't know yet that they are in a, in a, in a majority position if, if there were a new prime minister and a new president and a new situation. The problem that I have with all of this is that I don't see an American president in power right now or, frankly, uh, in power since Clinton who would have the hmm. uh, credibility the, in, in, the uh, respect of both parties in a situation. Remember, this was a time where, think about how different it was. Northern Ireland, Bill Clinton played a role in. Azerbaijan, Armenia, the United States was sought as, a, as an interlocutor. Bosnia. The Israeli-Palestinian, mm -hmm. uh, the Kosovo, the Balkans. Everyone wanted to be on the White House lawn yes. at, at that time. I don't think there's so many people uh, uh, rushing to want to be at the White House lawn these days. And there's a reason for that, because since then, um, uh, peace has been discredited. And I think, broadly speaking, around the world, the failure of Oslo as a result, and let's remember, I, I, I did point the finger at Arafat, and I'm comfortable with that, but the Israelis played their part. They created Hamas. They helped build up Hamas as an alternative to the PLO at a time when they thought they were trying to undercut the PLO. Yeah, yeah. And to, I don't like to make too many analogies between an Israeli situation and a Northern Ireland and Afghanistan, but mostly because I think there are different stages of peace. Yes. Afghanistan, we're just trying to get them to stop killing each other yeah. on the battlefield. Yeah. The Palestinian-Israeli was, was terrorism within a country, and the Protestant Catholic battle was in a place where the, the battle wasn't uh, of the same kind of uh, battlefield style in the other places. So they're at different stages. Yes. And I think at different stages, different people are necessary. But I would agree with, uh, with Clarissa, if I were to make the analogy 
she didn't make it, but I'll take it to the next step, that a Taliban leader is going to have to be Yasser Arafat Mm -hmm. made from a terrorist into a person who is allowed to visit the United Nations and allowed to be respected as a as a a political leader. And until we do that with some form of Taliban leadership, those people are going to continue to fight. And the United States, if it cares and continues to care about Afghanistan is going to have a tough time. But the question then becomes... How do you do that? How do you do that? And when you do it, do you then discredit that Taliban leader hmm. in the eyes of his constituency right. who yeah. already have so such loaded right, feelings about hard. America? Yeah. I mean, but one I'm, interesting... I'm, I'm, I'm just going to slip... Can let me just slip in one point just because it's a recent observation. But it's this idea that there is a limited shelf life of the person who has made that journey from fighter yes. to peacemaker before they are themselves discredited and the thing I was just going to mention and it relates to William's point about needing the the extremes in the room, Uh, I was speaking with a Palestinian former negotiator recently who said Arafat, the person Arafat really wanted to do a deal with throughout was Ariel Sharon who was not yet Prime Minister, he would become Prime Minister afterwards but he felt that would be the deal that would hold Hmm. that he was worried, even at Camp David which you were referring to, uh, he was worried about doing a deal with Ehud Barak and he had previously been worried about Perez and Rabin, he thought unless you make it with the right so there's no one over the shoulder who they're looking at then it won't really hold it's just a, a, a bit, and then the point I was going to make was that even when so Sharon eventually does do his withdrawal from Gaza and then suddenly he's denounced mm-hmm. as a sellout and a traitor mm-hmm. by the right so you only have a limited window but at that time when you the have right that credibility. was much less powerful they were. Yeah. when Ariel Sharon was prime minister and he had after attacking all these peace agreements, and I remember it why, when he came in the room, he was acting like there was a better deal for Netanyahu to get. And then after about a day, he realized that Netanyahu had gotten the best deal he could. And so a lot of these people use the, the opposition to peace as a way to gain power, cool. and then they're willing to act. Netanyahu was willing to act in the 90s when he faced an American president who could damage him politically. Yes. And, and Clinton showed that he was willing to do it and Netanyahu knew that it was because he's, he opposed the Y agreement, the 13% handover, that the White House caused him to lose power. Yeah. And he was off in the wilderness, and people didn't at that time think he was William was going to come in, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I was just going to say, I think another interesting thing about the play is how it shows how risky trying to make peace yes. is mm. for people. And so... You know, um, at the moment, if you're an Israeli citizen, if you're a U.S. citizen, uh, it's against the law to meet somebody from Hamas. And if you're a member of Hamas, if you met an Israeli official, it would be, you'd be excluded from the movement or worse. So that means that the opportunities for, for people to take these risks are very, very limited indeed. And that's, that's what uh, uh, U.S. government or EU-sponsored talks, all these things, that's what inhibits them in a way. And that's why these track two or track one and a half things happen. Of the kind you're involved in. Yeah. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I mean, the, the one general point I'm interested to hear all, what all three of you think of, what we see in Oslo on the play, but also it happened as part of the, the process, was this approach. It was a tactical approach to say, let's find the things we can agree on, mm-hmm. like the general principles. And the Oslo Accords was an outline of broad principles. It was DOP, it was called Declaration of Principles. And leaving the absolute hard, you know, hard detail, <coughs> the chapter and verse places on maps, We'll leave that for later. And as Jamie has told us, by the time it came to deal with those details in 2000 in Camp David, they couldn't do it. In retrospect, and from other conflicts you've observed, and Northern Ireland may be a relevant example, <clears throat> is actually the better approach to deal with the hard stuff from the beginning, rather than to trying this approach of find what we can agree on and then postpone the difficult things. I would have to say, I mean, you you know, this is exactly, I think in the very beginning of the play, they talk about this idea of totalization, i.e. going straight to the meat of it and breaking it all down versus gradual. Based on what I have seen and witnessed, you have to take, at least on some level, a more gradual approach. You are never going to get both sides to come to the negotiating table in a meaningful and substantive way. And you are never going to begin the really quite painful process of trying to recalibrate the public's mind to a, a different, perhaps, sense of identity. I mean, when you were asking the Palestinians to recognize Israel as a legitimate state, that's not something you can promise overnight. That's something you have to slowly but surely try to instill in a kind of public ideology. I think with Syria, we have seen a similar approach now being tried, perhaps more effectively, rather than talking about let's have a peace negotiation or let's have a, a you know a solution to this. Let's talk about um, localized ceasefires taking place, different parts of the country, different dynamics. And the hope is that when the ceasefire lasts a couple of months in one place and then maybe a couple months in the other place and then maybe someone can talk about sitting down in the same room as another person, it has to be as, you know, in the Arabic language they say like shway shway, like softly, softly. You have to take it little by little. Yeah. Because the metaphor I would use just quickly, we think so much about peace. Everybody wants peace. Who doesn't want peace? This is a very Western privileged understanding that peace is the natural resting state of the universe. In a lot of parts of the world, it isn't. And when you take war away from people and the identity that it gives people, the money that it gives people, the political power that it gives people, there is kind of, in the same way as a drug addict may want to go to rehab very badly and be clean, there is a kind of withdrawal process Mm. because those emotions and those political and financial motivations are extremely powerful. Uh, You you both want to get in, which I love and cherish and respect, but I'm very (laughs) keen to make sure we get people in here because we we have to be absolutely out of this room by 6.30, one at a time. Yes. What is the chance of the political climate in Israel changing so that there's greater will for peace and compromise? Okay, um, let's see if there's another hand up. We'll take a second one. Yeah. Surely the very first thing that has to happen is that Hamas have to acknowledge that Israel exists. You can't negotiate peace with a country when you yeah. don't acknowledge their existence. Okay, and is there a third question that we might take just so that we have them in threes? Yes, here we go. <laughs> I did tell you we've only got till 6.30. <laughs> um, but thank you. Those are all really good questions. We'll do another round soon. William, you were keen to get back to come back on the question, which the questioner said, surely you, before there's any chance of any movement, Hamas have to first of all recognise that Israel exists. Well, it's a very interesting point. And just, just as a sort of precursor to that, I took a senior Palestinian delegation from Gaza to meet Martin McGuinness and Sinn Féin some years ago. 
And Martin McGuinness said, the most important thing you have to understand is Israel isn't your problem. And the Palestinians looked a bit shocked and said, what is our problem? And he said, how you bring your own movement with you. In Northern Ireland, we had the American government with a passionate and charismatic president who wanted to do something with the Irish government and the British government. And the Sinn Feiners were able to go back to their constituency every night of that peace process and go back and talk through what they were negotiating. In Israel-Palestine, we do not have that situation. We do not have an Israeli, a US and an Egyptian government committed to an open, transparent process. And what's more, Hamas are divided between Gaza, the West Bank, prisons and the outside, and they can't commune and they can't progress. They can't actually engage with each other and evolve, which goes back to your question. However, I was able to take a senior ex-diplomatic delegation to meet the Hamas leadership uh, in a European country a while back. And Thomas Pickering, who was the most senior um, uh, US diplomat of his generation, opened the conversation with the Hamas leadership and said, why won't you recognize Israel's right to exist? And the Hamas leadership said, which Israel? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, an Israel on 1967 borders or an Israel that occupies Gaza and the West Bank? He said, an Israel that recognizes equal rights for Muslims, Christians, and Jews, or a Jewish state? It's not that simple, is it? And he said, we will never recognize the right of Israel to exist because it's a wrong for us. It was our Nakba. It's what excluded us, millions of us, from our home. We can recognize the reality of the state of Israel. But asking us to say it was right is a bit like asking you Europeans to say the German occupation was right in the Second World War. We can never say it was right. Ooh, I it's bet wrong they to really us. like that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm just telling you what they say. You know, we reduce this conflict to single-liners. I won't recognize Israel's right to exist. I won't engage with somebody, you know, who won't... Uh, committed to the destruction of the state of Israel. It becomes these silly one-liners, and you need to unpack them. They're much more complicated than you think. What about the, um, do you want to come back on this point, specifically well, the Hamas? Yes, and, and, and is there going to be the, ta- the first person? Well, the first question was, is Israeli political climate changing yes, in such a way that it could favor peace? Right. So, what so for, remember, Arafat used to have trouble recognizing Israel's right to exist as well, because that was the premise. And the Israelis held out for it, and he gave in when he decided it was time. And so the question was, how far to the yeah. right in the Palestinian movement, left, whatever you want to call it, extreme, would they have to go? And when Bill Clinton was in Gaza, it was to uh, remake the charter of the Palestinians to make that ever clearer. And thus the question became, will the Hamas ever make, remake yeah. their charter? Yeah. And they recently did remake it. And it's a little bit better, but it still yeah. has this problem. I don't think Hamas not recognizing the Israelis' right to exist is going to end up being a, 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 a deal killer. Yeah. I think what the question is, is when will we have an, a, an Israeli leader and a leader respected amongst Palestinians, maybe not one, maybe a pair of them, um, and an American president or some other outsider who has this combination of... of, of mm credibility that Rabin had at the time that Oslo was made. Remember, the Israelis only made this Oslo agreement because their most senior respected general was prime minister. And we tend to forget that. Uh, Rabin was killed by an extremist, by the kind of people that some people say should be in the room. That's why I don't think they should be in the room, because they don't want this outcome. They want a, a permanent state of war. There are people who want that. And I know this is going to take a minute, but I want to end with this because Clarissa is correct. Sometimes they're not ready for peace. Mm-hmm. And I want to give a concrete example of that. We helped bring the Serbs and the Kosovar Albanians together, and we put it to them that if they didn't agree, there were going to be deadly consequences. And in the end, the Kosovar Albanians agreed because they didn't want to lose the the support of the West, and the Serbs wouldn't agree and began a campaign of slaughter. And the answer was for us to bomb the Serbs until they changed their position. And as a result of that, the Serbs left Kosovo and the Albanians came back in the quickest repatriation of a million people in the history of the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. So some of these things have to be both war and peace Mm. for people to be ready 
or or some combination thereof, or they're at a different stage. And I think it's very important to right, distinguish no, no, all uh, of these things. So what would change Israeli public opinion? No one's suggesting bombing by the Americans. But what would change Israeli public opinion and make it shift? And if you, you've been speaking for a while, Clarissa, do you want to have a go at that? I mean, you know, I, I would defer, honestly, to Jamie on this because he has a much better sense. I mean, covering this conflict as a journalist, you know, I first went to Gaza relatively recently in 2006, most recently just a couple of years ago, it does seem that both sides seem to be going more and more and more and more like this. Um, It seems like there is a much uh, lower threshold for the kind of peaceniks, if you like, in Israel now. Uh, And there's almost a shift, I would argue, based on my rather superficial observations, in the zeitgeist in Israel from a kind of more kibbutznik, kind of left-leaning um, peace embracing to a much more Manichaean view of this conflict. And just to give you, you know, one thing that always stuck in my mind is we now, as you pointed out, we don't cover Israel and Palestine nearly as much as it used to be covered in the mm. 90s and even the noughties. And now we have come to think of it as this conflict that sporadically flares up. Uh, and every few years, the Israelis do something that they now refer to allegedly as mowing the lawn, which is when and they go into Gaza because it gets too hairy and they go in and take care of take care of business. So even the language yeah. that is being used. Well, let me put two, okay. two things to William and then we maybe come back. But I also do want to hear another round. Um, the, the thing about shifting Israeli public opinion, because you do your group famously talks to everyone involved. You, somebody, I think it was Jamie said earlier that the trouble with Oslo, in some ways, it discredited the very idea of peace uh, because of what happened, even in conflicts other, elsewhere around the world. It, it, peace has a brand problem in Israel. Uh, you know, you just uh, just being there, you pick that up very quickly. So, what could change? And then I do feel we should answer the attempt and answer on the question on Jerusalem, sure. which was the undoing, among other things, in Camp David. I, I'm sure. not going to give you that one. <laughs> um, but you know, at least uh, what, you know, at least outlines of what it's, people talk about. Easy. This sort of thing. It's okay, easy. Jamie says easy. So you go first. And James is going to solve Jerusalem. Okay. <laughs> and we're going to then have time for more questions. Yeah. I, I don't think at the moment you will find anyone in Israel or on the Palestinian side who sees any prospects of peace at all. Um, probably more people talk about it outside the region than inside the region. It just simply isn't considered an issue. And if you talk to people in South Africa, Northern Ireland, and so on, and ask them what makes things shift, they'll say when both sides thinks the status quo is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And until you're in that position, frankly, it's not going to change. And for for the Israeli side, the situation, at least in the short term, doesn't appear unsustainable. Mm -hmm. On top of all of that, you've got a political system in Israel where there are lots of new parties that pop up all the time and can get into power who are all chasing each other's votes. So it's political suicide, frankly, for anybody of the centre-right to the far-right to even be thinking or talking about peace, which takes us back to the play that you've either seen or going to see, which, which is all about the only way things can evolve is to take those actors out of the bubble, which is very intense there, and start to make them think differently and try and find the political leaders who are really prepared to take the risk. But that's a top-down way of doing it, saying I, I, let's bring the leaders down, over and then society will follow. You've pointed something very important out it has to work on multiple levels. Just because top-down people sign pieces of paper, it doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily mean it's going to cascade down. It really isn't going to work like that. And that is also a theme of the play, actually. Um, You're going to give us a quick solution for Jerusalem. Well, a a solution for Jerusalem, when you would have a rabbin as prime minister Mm. who had the credibility with his people as a general who had fought the Arabs over and over again, and an Arafat who prior to then was seen as the you know, opponent of Israel and hadn't recognized Israel, who had the credibility. I think, I don't want to mess up the wordings, but I think it's pretty clear that Jerusalem has been worked out in the Clinton parameters and the, yeah. and the subsequent uh, uh, prime minister, uh, Ehud Olmert, uh, did talks with, uh, with an, a, a Palestinian president, um, Mahmoud Abbas. So the details are you know, pretty well known. There's a few wordings you have to get right about the religious control of the, of the holy sites. But broadly <clears> speaking, <throat> the Arab sections become the Arab capital and the uh, Jewish sections become the Israeli capital and international uh, protections are made for those sensitive sites. And 
And I don't think that was the biggest issue. I think the biggest issue was the refugees because for Palestinians, this is, mm -hmm. as you put it uh, earlier, or described, you know, what happened to me and my families and those before me, that's their, you know, narrative. And the Israelis have a different narrative about 67 and when the Palestinians left in 48 or did they get pushed? And these things are not resolvable. So that's the hard one. Um, I think, compared to Jerusalem. But again, I don't think the time is ripe for an Oslo now. I don't think there are any people who could be brought to a secret meeting now who would be able to go home and have any, any power. And so what yeah. I think is the truth, and it's sad, and it's hard, and it's painful, is that it's not going to happen for a long time. How long? I don't know. And what I did learn over these 20 years or so of, of observing it is that when a paradigm shifts in the region, when something big changes, when, when moods change broadly and, and attitudes change, and there's a brief window, and will the right people be in power who have an inclination and credibility and, and, a, and, and expertise? And will they learn the lessons of Oslo with all of the subtleties uh, when that brief moment comes? You know, you, all you can say is you hope so. But <clears throat> I can assure you that Donald Trump, uh, Bibi Netanyahu and whoever is deciding to represent the Palestinians under this new uh, form of cooperation are not the three people we need. <laughs> It's also fair to say, and I think the play, funnily enough, makes you think this, the Israel-Palestine conflict has, been blessed with, has not been blessed with good luck in the sense that mm. Rabin, as you say, was the man ready to do it and he was gunned down. And Ariel Sharon reached a point where perhaps he was ready to do it and he was uh, uh, incapacitated by a stroke. So not decapitated, in <laughs> incapacitated. So one by one, the, you know, those moments, as you say, when the stars come into alignment, something has and gone Arafat wrong. And Arafat died. And then Arafat mm -hmm. died, of course. So let's have a, another round of questions if you have them and then we will bring it back for final remarks here. So lots of hands up. Why don't we get a microphone here just because there is a sort of cluster of hands and you can pass to each other. Um, there we are. Here's the first one. Basically, peace can't come until it's the, the current situation is unsustainable on both sides. The, I think the, the situation in Gaza and the West Bank is unsustainable for the Palestinians. What, it, it almost sounds as though the only thing you're suggesting, the only thing that needs to happen, not the only thing, the only thing that will change things is when it becomes unsustainable for Israel as it is. And that almost suggests that, you know, the, the, the approach of the, basically violence from the Palestinians is what's going to make it unsustainable for Israel. Is that okay. what, is that, okay, yes, no, don't that logic? Is don't that not what you're suggesting? Okay, is that I got the, the question. Yeah, yeah, let's um, pass the question. Of Mike. Is it you who wanted to say something? I was just going to ask whether the, the shifting demographics, uh, the population growth, or well, the uneven population growth on both sides could make peace less likely. Thank you. Yeah. And then if you pass the microphone yeah. over to there. Um, given that we don't have leaders anywhere right now who have the respect or the following of their own people, let alone other countries, my question is, what about back-channel um, diplomacy? Does this, is, is this effective? And then my other question is, Education. I'm involved in education for peace, but I wonder whether it's actually something that is, as you say, you know, a wonderful illusion or whether it's really mm. useful to okay. think more about this in terms of not raising yet another generation yes. who are taught to hate each other while we're waiting for good leaders. Thank you. Let's um, go with those and then I've got a sort of final question for all of you. Um, so the... The situation you... It was picking up your point, William. For peace to happen, it has to be unsustainable for both sides to continue to have not peace. That's when you get people to the table. It happened in Northern Ireland and elsewhere. Uh, a questioner said, is the only thing that will make this unsustainable for Israel, certainly not wishing it to happen, but is the fact uh, of this that there would need to be some threat of violence, perhaps from the Palestinians, that would make Israel think this is, cannot be contained any longer? Well, I don't think the Palestinians are equipped to provide the military threat to Israel that would do that. Um, no, I think it's more complex than that. It's a question whether the international community, or going back to what Jamie said, whether there's an American president 
who can put enough political credit at risk to try and persuade the Israeli Prime Minister of the time or whatever to, to, to move forward and, and to take some risks. But, you know, what's very interesting, uh, Gaza... When did we last hear about Gaza in the news? You often hear people saying, why do they fire these rockets? It's pointless, isn't it? Why do they do it? And when you ask them why they do it, in part they say, well, it gets us on the news, and then the world starts to think about us, but when nothing's happening militarily, everyone's forgotten our plight. And, you know, it's tragic in a way that, that the Palestinians are left in that situation where only by firing weapons and taking lives can they get the world's attention. Um, shifting demographics, do they make peace less, even less likely? And I suppose what's in my, the questioner asked about the differential demographics and the, you know, the people often look at the birth rate, it's lower among Israeli Jews than it is among Palestinians. What do you Not think? as true as it once was. They're, the settlers are quite, uh, whatever the word is, you know what I mean. <laughs> Prolific. <laughs> Prolific. Um, but, but, the, the, um, but also the point is as well about ultra-Orthodox Jews. Too. Look, so I think going. there's a, a a larger point, and it's very painful for me of all people to say this, is, you know, at some point we may have to give up the idea that a two-state solution is the goal. And instead, we may have to try to do something more interim on a permanent basis and let, you know, the larger endpoints come uh, sometime later. If we could make the Palestinians' lives better... Uh, and, uh, even without a state and even without their political objectives. And in exchange for that, Israelis got more security at a, you know, a sort of an interim level. That may be all we can do. Is this and, the so-called sort of, sorry, but is this the so-called one-state solution where... Well, I didn't want you, to go you, that you, far. I know you don't want to go that far, yeah. but I want to push you on it. The, the, the whole region is thought of as a single political entity in which everybody who lives in it, one person, one vote. I, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think the Israelis will let that happen. Uh, and I think, yeah, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. But I, but I want to also add that I always wondered why the Palestinians never did what the Indians and other oppressed colonial groups have done. You know, massive non-cooperation, massive civil obedience. In the modern media era, if they could get large groups of people, when they briefly did on the Lebanese border, I remember they all just sat there and refused to go back to, uh, to the West Bank when they had been expelled by the Israelis. About 100 of them just sat in the desert and the media all came and covered them. I don't understand why the Palestinians don't have massive uh, disobedience that gets the world's attention, and I can assure you it's more likely to succeed than uh, terrorist bombings that have failed or rockets that have failed. Okay. They've tried the violence. It's not going to work. The Israelis have figured out how to deal with that. William, am I right that Palestinians would say we've tried nonviolence? For example, not, the town of like Billy. I just described. Hang on, the, trans, the town of Billion and those nonviolent protests have broken up fairly violently. Well, what if would my dear say? friend Mustafa Barghouti was here, he would tell you exactly. This is a, a doctor who's had most of his bones broken at one stage or other in non-violent protest. It's very hard in the West Bank to actually get what Jamie's talking about because communities are isolated. Twitter. In, in, in their, they may be, but they're isolated physically. They can't get from one part of the West Bank to the other to create enough of a mass to do so. Um, and in Gaza, the they've tried doing it. The movement is gaining traction, the boycott movement. That's more of an external yeah. thing. But in Gaza, people have tried it, but they're walled in. You know, you, so you can be as peaceful as you like, but if you're stuck in a giant jail, as you might say, what are you going to do about it? Finally, to you, yeah. Clarissa, this absence of leaders and what about back channels? Yeah. I was wondering, you know, who would you cast as the potentially in the role of the Norwegians in the play for any future back channel? And also the questioner asked about raising a new generation to not feel the way of the pre their previous predecessors? So just based on my experience and, and what I have seen, I would say that back channels are essential because before this becomes political or geopolitical, this is about humanizing. Humanizing is the key. You will see this in the play tonight, sharing jokes, talking about your family, enjoying a drink together if it's appropriate, sharing a meal, breaking bread together. This is the first plank. You cannot talk about, you know, saving the world or saving the, you know, a specific region from a conflict before you can actually talk to each other as two human beings. Because, and you know, both of you have hit on this, trust 
is the key issue. So if you want to try to build trust, if you want to build areas of common understanding, that has <clears> to be done through back-channeling. The reality is when you have a very public uh, mediator involved, it becomes political and with all the sort of you know distraction that contains. And just ending with your point on education, education is part of that. It's not just enough to send people to school. Of course, that's crucial. But as long as you have Israelis and Palestinians never seeing each other anymore, half the time, separated by a wall. Palestinians are not even allowed to travel on the same roads as Israelis. So as long as you have that, you're going to continue to have a situation where it is just too easy to dehumanize the other, to portray them as a villain, and to just say, peace, Who ain't nobody got time for that. Well, thank you for that uh, closing thought. We didn't have time for my last question I was holding back, which is, do we need a secret back-channel mediation between Brussels and the British government? Um, and, and, and who might volunteer for that role? Um, talking about intractable conflict. Um, so we didn't have time for that, but we had some fantastic questions and some very, very good debate. Um, I'm going to thank our panel in a minute, but first I want to say, uh, I think most of you are going to see Oslo, which we obviously all strongly recommend, so do do that. But also Intelligence Squared, who brought this uh, debate to you, their website, intelligencesquared.com, has everything that they're up to all can be found there, including the podcast version of this discussion. So you may even hear your own question back there. But for now, I thought you'd want to join me in thanking our terrific panel, William Seagart, Clarissa Ward, Jamie Rubin. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.